When I come to sit at the front and offer a Dharma talk, I like to take a moment just to express in a traditional way my appreciation and respect for the teaching of the Buddha and the life that he lived, which was a remarkable life as far as I can tell. And in the, in the tradition and the form, one can bow in different ways. And one of the ways that I've learned and that I've enjoyed to practice this expression of appreciation and gratitude is, is in bowing three times to the image of the Buddha. And uh, it's something that I also find myself doing. Someone asked about it, uh, you know, at the end of a sitting, just that bringing the hands together in front of one's in front of one's heart, in fact, and that sense of acknowledging. For me, it's an expression of appreciation and uh, also gratitude and respect. And uh, in the sitting, acknowledging that it's not an easy thing that we do to practice here and to honor that and to appreciate that. For myself, feels natural. It's absolutely not required. No one else needs to feel inclined to do that if you don't, but you're also very welcome to if you should feel so moved. But um, that sense of being able to appreciate something that we, that we value, that sense of being able to actually also show respect and gratitude for the, the efforts that others have made to bring us wisdom and to offer us teachings, I think this is a, a natural response of the human heart and a, and a useful one, a helpful one. And for me, it's also my sense of just appreciation of, gosh, you know, they're still here. They turn up. They mostly seem to do pretty much what we suggest. It's like, that's kind of incredible. You can't take that for granted, you know, in this world. And so this evening I'd like to speak about one of the core elements of the the Buddha's teaching. One of the areas of, I think, most importance for us to reflect upon. Of course, there are many of these. But uh, for me, the the theme of the talk and... uh, a title I find, at least for myself, somewhat amusing, is uh, Living in Rental Accommodation. I'd like to talk about the truth of change, of impermanence in life. And it's a fundamental aspect of our experience. It's a fundamental aspect of the Buddha's teachings, the Dharma teachings, that things change. And the Buddha spoke about it, he described it as the elephant's footprint which might sound a little cryptic, but the elephant's footprint is the footprint which encompasses all other footprints. And this truth that all that arises is subject to passing, this truth of change dominates the world of things. This dominates the world of what arises, the fact that it will also pass. And we could say that this human existence is, could be usefully described perhaps as living in rental accommodation. Borrowed accommodation, we could say. When my wife Catherine and I were um, not long married and we'd been living a couple of years in America working at a retreat centre in Massachusetts, IMS, which some of you may know of or have visited, um, we came back to England and to uh, just to guy our house had just this new building had just been purchased and we'd moved, the organisation had moved here, and we didn't really have any much money. But we were, in fact, we didn't have really any money. But we were very grateful to be offered a place to live in a, a very nice um, 
stately house, you'd have to say, on the River Dart, um, and our duties and functions were really just to be there because there was an elderly gentleman, rather lovely chap, whose daughters were concerned that he was living by himself. He wasn't concerned at all, and he didn't really need any help at all, thank you. Um, but he was very gracious, and so we, Catherine, you know, did some flower arrangements for him, and I occasionally um, drove him to town if he needed something. But we had this rather lovely place to live in a whole wing of a stately home for no rent. And uh, it was very nice. We were there for about a year and the folk who rang the house about a year after we came, the people in charge, they very kindly asked us to meet with them and let us know that they'd like us now to leave, please. Just as kindly as they'd offered us to come and stay. And it was like, okay, so I guess we're going to leave. And uh, we moved through a range of different places. We were six months here and two months there and three months somewhere else. And then some friends of ours who we knew from travels in India, they were buying a house and they were fortunate. They had some inheritance from their family and so they were able to buy quite a nice house and uh, in fact quite a big house. And they thought, oh, we'd like some people to share it with us. They invited us to come and stay and we lived together with them. And it was lovely, a very nice house. Nice folk, we got on well. And after about a year and a half at one of our regular weekly meetings where we talked about things, our friends said to us that they'd like us to move out. <laughs> and, you know, we tried not to take it too personally. But, uh, of course, it was their house. We'd been staying there for a reduced rent for friends. Still paying, but not that much. And it was like, oh, okay, I guess we have to move out now. To be invited in to this world as we are born into this life, this body, this mind. And then one day be told, it's time to leave. That's how it happens. This human experience is temporary accommodation. It's not forever. And the landlord is rather unpredictable. Any day we may get that invitation to the meeting which says, sorry, time to go. And there isn't any arguing at that point, it's just, okay, we got invited in, now we get invited out. We're not really in charge of either of those events, generally. And so this is something that we are invited to consider, to reflect upon, to contemplate. And one of the reflections that the Buddha suggested would be a useful thing for us as human beings to every day contemplate, a daily reflection. There were a number, but the first one, well, Actually, it's not the first one, but the first one that I'm referring to here is that the reflection that everything that is mine, beloved, and dear to me, that I will be parted from. It's like, hmm, gosh. Yeah, that's kind of true, isn't it? It's not kind of true, it actually is true. And when we actually let that in, we may... You know, it's not just things, but actually people. We will be parted from them. We will die. They will die. Situations change. And acknowledging that, it, it's not inappropriate that we might feel some sorrow, some sadness, some grief. But what's interesting is we don't usually really acknowledge this truth. That we will be parted from everything and everyone we feel close to. We will be parted from them. We only really acknowledge it generally if it's happening close, if we can see it about to take place, or if it's just taken place. 
And for the Buddha, in his own story and the journey, and that it, it seems that his own encounter with this reality, his encounter with the fact of, wow, yes, everything and everyone is subject to impermanence, to ending, to death. That this inspired him, and he said, in fact, before he, or it's recorded that he said, before he left on his his quest, before he began his um, journey in search of wisdom and understanding, he said, why should I, who am subject to birth, to aging, to decay and death, why should I also pursue other things which are subject to birth, to aging, to decay and death? Would it not make more sense that myself being subject to birth, to aging, to decay and death, that I would seek for that which is not subject to those things? And this was the basis of his, of his looking, of his inquiring, of his passionate and committed exploration of his life. So this is something powerful. This, this territory, to contemplate this is something that, you know, perhaps there should be a health warning on the packet. This might involve changing your life. I'm not saying for sure that it will. But the interesting thing is it's not really news to us, is it? We all know. No one's going, oh, really? Things change? No, no, no. No one's sort of stood up and said, don't try and tell me things change. That's not real. We know it. It's obvious to us. It's all around us. One day it's sunny, the next day it's raining. Then it's windy and stormy, and tomorrow, who knows? Just the weather. In this country, it's a pretty constant reminder of unreliability and change. But do we really know? Do we really know? Do we act accordingly? It's kind of amusing to me here we are in June and it's raining enthusiastically and summer is supposedly coming I once spent a month at the old guy house three miles away in Denbury in June I was on retreat for the whole month it rained every day and I know because I was doing walking meditation in it every day for a month not all day every day but every day it rained and that was not long after I'd come to live in the UK so it was a kind of an interesting introduction but some years later, I was coming to teach a retreat here at this, at the new, it's not really the new guy house anymore, but to me somehow it still is. You know, 20 years later, it takes a time to adjust to change. It's not that new, but uh, I was teaching a retreat here and it was in June and actually we've been having a spell of really warm weather. It's actually quite hot. And sometimes it's sunny in June, as you know. And what was very interesting as I was getting ready to come over for the retreat to teach for a week in June here I was a bit vexed I was a bit anxious I was a bit concerned because I didn't really have many clothes for warm weather that were tidy enough to wear to a retreat I had a few ripped t-shirts and sort of singlets that I could sit on a beach in but not really for warm weather and looking reasonably tidy and I was quite concerned and even getting a little bit stressed I realized at some point what can I wear what will I have I'm gonna I'm gonna run out after two days and I ended up at Guy House teaching this retreat and not entirely surprisingly it would seem after a couple of days the weather changed. It turned wet, it got cold and I went back into my bag and I couldn't find, I didn't have a single jumper. I didn't have any warm clothes in there and I thought what went on? How did that happen to me? 
I talk about this all the time. And still I somehow managed to imagine and get quite worried about the fact that in fact I was imagining it was going to be sunny for the whole week because it had been for two or three days. It's kind of shocking and amusing and also kind of sobering to see how easily we fool ourselves in this way. And this is one of the fundamental misperceptions that we can live our life under or in the influence of in a way that actually causes a lot of struggle and pain. To see that which is impermanent as if it were permanent. That which is changing as if it was fixed and stable. It happens, you know, we've perhaps touched on it already, but the phenomena that's so common on a retreat, someone's sitting in meditation, and the first day or two it's pretty hard work, we know that. And maybe after a couple of days or three, and been here three days now, sometimes things begin to settle, calms down, and there's a sense of, ah, yes, okay. And then it's like, wow, yeah, I've arrived. Oh, that's what they were talking about. It is good. Yeah. And then within a moment, the mind has started to think, I'm going to do a longer retreat. This five days. I'm going to do a week. I'm going to do a month. Yeah, and I said he did a month. I'll do two months. Maybe I'll become a nun or a monk. Maybe I'll spend the rest of my life in a cave meditating. And we have this image of sort of bright light pouring from the entrance of the cave as we're sitting in meditation therein. And you know what we've done, of course. We've projected that experience. It's going to be like this. And if it's going to be like this, then I want more of it. And I'm going to keep doing it. And it's going to keep in, be even more like this. And then at that moment, you suddenly realize, oh my gosh, one brief moment, three breaths in a row, and I've built this colossal fantasy. I'm absolutely not cut out for meditation at all. I can't do this. This is hopeless. I think I'll go home right away. I'm not even staying till the end of the retreat. And again, we see, oh, I got lost for a moment, and then I project that experience as if that's going to be the whole thing, as if that defines my experience and who I am and determines my future. And we do that again and again in our lives in so many different ways. When a difficult mind state arises or a pain in our body arises, look and see for yourself. Is the most difficult thing the fact that it's uncomfortable or painful or challenging to me? Or is it that at some level I'm scared it's going to stay like this forever and I won't be able to cope? So often it's that tendency to project it into the future. Because the interesting thing is, if it's happening and you're still here noticing it, even if you're not liking it, the reality is you are surviving it. You're actually already doing okay with it, even if it's not fun. So you can. But the thought that says, I can't, what it's saying is, I can't face it if it goes on like this forever. But the truth is it doesn't. It never does. It can't. Things just don't keep going forever. Or if they did, of course, at some point we'd stop. And so it still wouldn't be forever. That's maybe not such a reassuring prospect. <laughs> but, yeah, that's what happens. And we can see the language that we use sometimes when we speak about our experience. It's always like this. It's never 
like that. We assume an experience to be solid and fixed and always in a certain way. And there's almost no experience we can point to that really fulfills that kind of language, what it suggests. Even when we say, oh, it's the same as something else, you know, sometimes people say, oh, yeah, I've got the same pain as I had last week. Actually, it's not the same pain. It's a new one. It's just arrived today. Or this is the same breath as the one I had yesterday. It's not, you know. It's completely different, in fact. But somehow we've stopped noticing that reality. And sometimes what happens, of course, as we settle more into the retreat and things start to work a little perhaps more easily for our heart and our mind and our body, we start to get casual. It's like, oh, well, yeah, it's very nice. You know, it was kind of hard work at the beginning, but these retreats, they're all right. I know how to do it. And, um, you know, oh, well, I think I'll just cruise on through from here. You know, should be all right. And at some level, we start to imagine that this retreat will last forever, that these fortunate and precious conditions we have here, the support of each other and this place and these teachings, are something we're going to have forever, but they're not. In some ways, just for a little while, we have this fortunate circumstance here. And there's something about actually recognizing, oh, this is a precious opportunity. The work we've done, the deepening that's already taken place in our processes, in the yoga movement, and the, the walking, and the sitting, and the exploring, this is something precious and powerful. Not to take it for granted, how deeply we've already travelled into our experience, into our life, and what that offers us, to see what might be possible for you here. There's a traditional reflection from the Zen tradition which goes something like this. The days are relentlessly passing. How well am I spending my time? Not just the days of the retreat, of course, the days of our lives are relentlessly passing. How well are we spending our time? Are we spending our life engaged with what is most important to us? Because we might not get that many more opportunities to make the choices that are really important to us. There's no guarantee of a rerun. And we can find ourselves living our life as if it would be forever. Even though we know that it won't be forever. And yet somehow something in us can imagine and act and relate to it as if it might be so. There's a passage from the, um, the Bhagavad Gita, the Indian spiritual sort of text, where the main character, we could say, Arjuna, who's sort of like the hero in that story, is in conversation with his charioteer, Krishna, and Krishna being a god in that, um, in that sort of uh, framework, also represents wisdom and understanding. And Anjuna asks Krishna before they go into battle, he says, what's the greatest miracle you've seen with your vast vision of the universe? What's the most amazing thing, the greatest miracle you know? And Krishna responds, he says, well... It's that although people see around them everywhere others dying, they somehow do not believe it will happen to themselves. And it's kind of a miracle, really, because, of course, we all know. No one's going to say, oh, no, I'm, I'm sure I'm going to live forever. 
But do we actually live as if that is true? Probably most of us would have to answer, if we're being honest, not all the time. And maybe actually not that much of the time. The French philosopher, Gailleux, he said, If we know, but we do not act accordingly, then we know imperfectly. Really interesting, really useful understanding. If we know, but we don't act in accordance with that knowledge, then that knowledge hasn't really gone very deep into us. And this imperfect knowing, which says, oh yeah, I know things change, I know I'm not here forever, that's not much use to us. If it doesn't change how we live, if it doesn't mean I live as if that was true. And the process of practice we're engaged in, the journey of insight, we could say, is very much concerned with the transformation in our seeing and our action, how we see and how we live our life through correcting the misperceptions, the misunderstandings which we are often laboring under. And we could call it a movement from blindness or confusion to wisdom and clarity. And so we might wonder, how is it that we get fooled by this? I've wondered this myself. How, how could I be fooled by it? As I said, I talk about it quite a lot. And so it occurred to me some time ago, an image and a metaphor in a way for explaining this, which feels really useful, at least for me it seems useful. And I'd like to invite you just to imagine this as I describe it to you. Imagine you're driving in a car on a long, straight road and you're looking out of the front window at what's ahead. On a long, straight road, what's out there doesn't really change very much, even though you're driving along at, you know, 50 miles, 60 miles, 70 miles an hour, what's that? 100, 110 kilometers per hour. It doesn't change very much, even if you're traveling quite quickly. What's out there on the horizon in front of you on a long straight road. And then imagine if you look out the back window. Now don't do that if you're driving, obviously, but if you look out the back window on the same scenario, what's behind you, it's not changing very much either on a long straight road. And then imagine what happens if you look directly out of the side window at the side of the road beside you. What do you see? Driving along at 50, 60 mile an hour, 100, 110 kilometers an hour. What do you see? It's moving so fast it's a blur. You can't actually see a single thing. You might notice telegraph poles or telephone poles going past, bing, 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 every 50 yards. That's about as good as you'll get a clear picture. And it's really kind of what happens to us. Things are moving quickly. And we tend to spend a lot of time looking into the past. And the images we have of the past that we see appear fixed. They seem solid. They don't appear to change. The interesting thing about the images we have of the past is that they're just fragments. They're incomplete snapshots. It would take you as long as it took to have an experience to remember it fully. One day that might be remembered, that was a great day. To actually remember the day would take you 24 hours of full-on experience to run it again. Whatever is less than that is just a fragment that we remember. 
And we can confirm that by just checking out if you have five people in one room when something happens and you ask them, even ten minutes later, what happened? And independently, each write it down. You get five different stories. And no one of those stories is what happened. It's that person's picture. And what we do, we look in the back, those pictures get fixed, and then we project them into the future. There is nothing in front of us except some way we reorganize our images from the past, place them in front of ourselves and say, oh, that's what it's going to be like. Everything you long for in the future is somehow a reflection of something you've loved or enjoyed or appreciated in the past. Everything you fear about the future is somehow associated or connected in some way inside you with something you've experienced in the past that was difficult. That somehow you're imagining in front of you again. And interestingly, of course, with those difficult things, all those difficult things from the past that we're imagining in the future and maybe afraid of or anxious about, the interesting thing is we survived them all. We did, or we wouldn't be here. Everything that was difficult up till now, we survived it. But that's not so important for this image or metaphor. That's just kind of our relationship to past and future. Because we're looking in the past and it's just a fragment, fixed image, and we project it into the future, that's where we dwell. Things look fixed. Things don't change very much. It's that simple. So long as we're fixated on past and future, we don't see change. We see fixed images. If you start paying attention to the present, and that's what we're doing here, if you start watching what's actually happening, even if you slow it down as we have and simplify it as we have, there's actually rather a lot going on, isn't there? And have you noticed how much it's changing? How different the experience can be from one sitting to the next, from one walking to the next, from one yoga posture to the next? And, of course, Equally within one period of yoga, one period of walking or standing or sitting or lunch or anything at all. The more we pay attention to our close experience, the more we refine our ability to notice it clearly. Because it takes a little training. What we see is this apparently solid experience is flickering and fluid. This body, this mind... These thoughts and feelings, the sounds, the taste, the smell, the touch that makes up our world, they're changing and changing and changing and changing, moment by moment by moment, unstoppably. And you know, this constant process of change, if we try to take hold, if we try to sort of stop it or see, oh, this is where I am, even in the moment of saying I'm here, it's already moved to the next thing doesn't even pause for us to acknowledge oh this is what's happening but even as I say that to myself no now what's happening is you're talking about what's happening we've already moved on and where have those experiences gone where have all the sensations you've had in your body gone all the lovely delightful delicious yummy things that you've felt that you've touched that you've smelt that you've tasted in your life where are those experiences now And all the thoughts that you've had, even just in the last 40 minutes, let alone the years and decades of our life, where are all those thoughts now? They're gone, completely. Life 
emerges, reveals itself, expresses itself, arises and keeps dissolving and dissolving and dissolving. And we might find ourselves a little sort of challenged by actually seeing that directly, which is part of why we don't necessarily really feel that keen on looking to see what's going on here. We might hesitate to really take this in. It's unsettling. It's unsettling for us. This vibration of change, of movement, of fluidity. And often the way we respond to it, because it is unsettling, is that we actually feel a bit somehow compelled to resist it. We try and avoid it. We attempt to find or create fixity, solidity, security, rigidity, non-movingness in different ways and forms, permanence, control. And part of that, a significant part of that, plays out in the amount of energy we put into thinking about the future to somehow try and create the situation, the scenario, the circumstances, the relationships, or whatever it is, the possessions that we feel like we need to have in order for things to be reliable and safe. There's a hope we have for security, for safety, and for, for, for protection from change, for protection from the unsettling impact of impermanence. And yet that hope is ultimately disappointed. We don't find security through these sorts of things. No matter how many of them we have had, we currently have, or we will have. They in the end don't give us that because they too, no matter what we find, it too turns out ultimately to be subject to this truth. Relationships, people, even ourselves, even we don't stay as we thought we could be or should be or might be. And even if we get ourselves to be the person that we think now I can rely on this, something else turns up that means we show up in a different way. It's a little bit like, well, the question it raises is like, so how do I relate to this reality? If this is how it is, and it's, it's not all of the truth of our life, but it's a fundamental, central element or tenant of what is true in our life, in all life. And it's a little bit like kids building a sandcastle on the beach. And you can imagine the scenario, some children go down to the beach, they build a lovely castle. I was actually at the beach a few days ago myself, and it was sunny, and kids were building big sand castles and structures. And of course, at some point, what happens is the tide comes in. And some of the children, of course, might be really distressed when the tide comes in and knocks down their beautiful sandcastle. And others might dance around and sort of enjoy the spectacle and perhaps even you know, kick a few turrets off by themselves, you know, before the tide gets to it and participate in that sort of dissolution of what has been created. And sometimes, of course, we find ourselves crying over the dissolving sandcastle. And 
understandably perhaps, if we hoped that it would be forever. And sometimes we might celebrate it and enjoy the dance. But part of what's really interesting here is what enables us to build the sandcastle, to take that metaphor and make it very specific. You don't build a sandcastle below the low tide zone, do you? You know, like where the water never leaves. Below the low tide zone, you can't build a sandcastle because it's covered in water. Have you ever tried to build a sandcastle above the high tide zone, where the sand is completely dry? You can't do a thing with it. You build a sandcastle by definition in the region between high tide and low tide. Because that's where the material can actually build things. Wet sand. You need sand and water. Too much water, it doesn't work. No water, it doesn't work. And so you only ever build a sandcastle in the place where the tide must come in. That's our life. This is built of material. That by the nature of its ability to build, be built, have things built out of it, is also of the nature to be something which dissolves. Helen Keller, who lived a remarkable life, although born blind and deaf, she once observed, she said, Security is mostly a superstition. It does not exist in nature, and nor do the children of humankind as a whole experience it. She said, In the long run, avoiding danger is no safer than outright exposure. Life is either a glorious adventure, or it is nothing. Remarkable words. She lived a remarkable life. And something about that, really taking that in for us, wow, this is actually how it is for us, all of us. It can be sobering, it can be challenging, but it's important to really let the truth of this in. And of course, the fact of impermanence, it of change, it's not all bad news. You know, for starters, things will be a little crowded if everyone that was ever here was still here. Imagine if everyone who'd ever come to Guy House was still in the room. It would be kind of unpleasant, probably very smelly. There wouldn't be any air. There certainly wouldn't be any room. You know, we're kind of glad that a few people moved on before we got here. The planet too, of course. If every being that had ever lived was still on it, whoa, it would be quite full. And at a more kind of immediate level, we might notice that, of course, the fact that when we have difficult experiences arising in our lives, in our bodies, our hearts, our mind, as they sometimes do, we struggle with them, as I observed already or mentioned already, a lot to do with our idea that this might last forever. Unless I fight it, unless I resist it, maybe it'll become permanent. And when we reflect on, when we contemplate impermanence, we look at the experience and acknowledge, oh, this too is not forever. Suddenly it becomes easier. It might be just scary or difficult or unflattering an event or painful an experience, but it's not forever. And something in us relaxes when we bring that contemplation in. It's like, ah, oh, 
I can be with this when I recognize I don't have to do it forever. I only have ever have to do it just for now. That's all we're ever asked to do, to be with it just for now. And if it's still there in the next moment, then we'll be with it just for now in that moment too. You've already seen you can do it. But when we stop staying with that immediacy and we go into the future and the projected sense of continuity and struggle, then it becomes a whole other level of pain and suffering for us. So we practice consciously giving attention to the fact of impermanence, to the experience of change as an experiential truth, not just a concept, not just an idea, but by seeing and watching how things do change. And it starts to give some space. It starts to open up the sense of possibility for us. And interestingly, impermanence is also something that's at the basis or the heart of what what can really touch us, what can really move us or nourish our hearts. Real beauty is almost always connected with things that are not forever. The beauty of a baby or young child is not separate from the fact that it will grow out of that baby or childlike nature of a flower. Flowers are incredibly beautiful. They don't last long. Butterflies too. They don't last long. And if you ever encounter those amazing, remarkable, perfectly crafted plastic flowers in a restaurant, and they've even put some perfume in them to make them smell like a flower, and it takes a moment because at the first sense there's a, well it looks perfectly like a perfect beautiful flower, but it doesn't touch the heart because it's not dying. And its tenderness and its temporiness is part of what touches us. Part of what its beauty is inextricably bound to. And imagine if you're watching the sunset. And sunsets by their nature are constantly changing and dissolving. But if you saw an amazing sunset and you go, wow, wow, look at those purples and reds and yellows and oranges and whatever colors, wow. And if it stays exactly the same, in a few moments, you go, hmm, that's interesting. Well, mum, what's for tea? But if it keeps changing, and you'll see, they usually do, it can capture your attention for quite some time. The beauty that we see in things is connected with the way they keep dissolving. And not only beauty, but preciousness, which is perhaps connected to this. The feeling of what is precious to us is, is brought to life by the fact that it's not forever. And when Catherine, my wife and I, when we were married, we had a pretty sort of, I guess you'd say, alternative, weirdy, um, happy kind of Buddhist wedding. And um, we thought it was pretty cool at the time, um, and very wise. But uh, I think quite a few of our family, particularly Catherine's family, were a little bit shocked that we opened the ceremony with Catherine singing a prayer based on the refrain, only for a short time, life has loaned us to each other. And we were about to you know, commit to something pretty uh, momentous and that was um, 20-something years ago now, so it's, it's been quite a long, short time so far. But that sense for us was actually, oh yeah, but there's something really important in remembering that this isn't forever, the short time that we have to live this life and with another person for this time. 
to feel that, to let ourselves be touched by that. There's a there's a little plaque in um, the monastery at Chittos, Chittavaveka Buddhist monastery in uh, West Sussex, where I am fortunate to have been able to spend some time over the years and uh, have a lot of appreciation for the community, the sangha there, the nuns and the monks. And there's a little plaque that's been there a long time. It used to be the only one in the underneath the little bush. There's a few of them now, but this one had a haiku on it. And it, the haiku, obviously translated from the Japanese, went something like, or goes something like this. The cherry blossom covers the hillside for but a few days. Any longer, and we would not cherish it so. And under that, it says, Little Sam. And there's a single date. And even when I speak about it, and having spoken about it plenty of times, and just remember it, I feel the preciousness of that life that was just for a single day. And not less precious to the people who love that being because it was just for one day, but more so in fact. The impermanence, the briefness of that visit cannot be separated from how deeply touching that life must have been for those close to it and even is for me who never knew these people feeling into the preciousness that impermanence invites us to know of this life if it was forever we wouldn't feel it so deeply it wouldn't really matter in the way that it does but it's not. And we do feel it deeply. And it does matter deeply, this life. And so we're invited to allow ourselves to be touched by this, to feel this, to let this move us in whatever way it might do. The significance of this contemplation, of this reflection of seeing in our own experience, but then also bringing to mind that understanding of impermanence, of change. Anicca is the word the Buddha used. Impermanence or not permanentness. To see that this is how things are. That in a way we're living in rental accommodation. We're just here for a while. And what does that mean about how to live my life? One of the things it means that strikes me in this context is that actually if we rent a house we're kind of much more likely to say, oh, it's just okay, it'll do. And I remember when we moved into the house with our friends and they just bought this house, it was a really nice house. We moved in and it was kind of like, well, this is a really nice house. And they moved in and it said, this is a really nice house and we'd like to move that wall and we're going to put a fireplace over here and the kitchen could be like this now. And it's like, oh yeah, as soon as I think it's mine and forever, I start wanting to change it and fix it and improve it. I want to make it accord with my preferences and my ideals. If we understand that we're just here for a little while, we're much more likely to be able to say, actually, it's okay like this. I can, I can live with this version of a body and a mind and an experience. These thoughts, 
these mind states, these sensations, this whole life in a sense is just borrowed. We don't need to fix it. We don't need to get it perfect. We don't have to get it to fit into some idea of what we think it should be. Because we're not here forever. Why put all that effort into that? When we're leaving at the end anyway. So to see the transience of our experiences, to start to hold it more lightly. And there's a, a stanza from the Diamond Sutra, one of the sort of the, the teachings of the, the later northern school of the Mahayana Buddhist uh, lineages. In the Diamond Sutra, there's a, as I said, it says, it goes like this. Thus you should look upon this fleeting world a drop of dew, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lantern, a mirage and a dream. And this like cascade of images of dissolving evanescent phenomena, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a mirage, a phantom, and a dream. And just feel the sense of sort of something that flickers, that flows, that moves, each having its particularity. And it's, you know, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud. It's, it's, it's a significant event. And then it's gone. What is it to look on life through this, to see this fleeting world through this understanding? What it tells us, what it suggests to it is, is that actually the relationship we form with things could be much more open. That that which is lovely and delightful, yes, let's receive it, but not try and hold on to it, because its nature is to pass on. That which is uncomfortable and difficult, sure, we might not enjoy it or seek it out, but when it comes, let it be, because it won't be forever. And... Allow ourselves to be touched by what's here that's precious and beautiful. In the spirit of impermanence, we can still treasure this life. And Blake, William Blake writes, and I think rather beautifully on this topic, he says, and understanding very clearly the situation we're in, he says, He who binds himself to a joy does the winged life destroy? He who binds, sorry, he who kisses the joy as it flies lives on in eternity's sunrise. Something very, I think for me, very well expressed in those few lines. That tendency to bind ourselves to the joy. When something is lovely and we take hold of it, it destroys the winged life. It the lightness, the flight, that which gave it joy, gave, made it joyful. When we bind ourselves to it, that's no longer there. It's lost. That sense of flight, of freedom, of openness that delighted us is gone when we've grabbed it. Like catching a butterfly. What joy does it give us in a cage? None. It's still beautiful, but none by way of real joy. And yet, Kiss the joy as it flies. To be intimate with that experience, to allow ourselves to touch it intimately, but not to hold on to it, is to live in eternity's sunrise. 
Blake is pointing to the, the dawn of the timeless. An understanding of something that is revealed to us when we can live in the spirit of this fluid life. The dawn of the timeless. She who binds herself to a joy does the winged life destroy. She who kisses the joy as it flies lives on in eternity's sunrise. So we're invited here to make space for, to make peace with this life as it is, to see it as it is in a process of transformation, of unfoldment, of dynamic life. Not trying to control our experience in the present, not trying to fix what will be in the future. To do so is to attempt to build on quicksand with materials that cannot be formed into permanent things because they are in themselves not that. Not seeking permanent satisfaction from changing experience we naturally start to find ourselves more willing and more able to let go and to look deeper, to see what we might discover when we don't hold on, when we do not grasp at this life. And the Buddha said, having practiced and searched and explored deeply in his life, born of that initial question, of what, what makes sense for me here. He came to say and to understand or to say from his own understanding there is that which is unborn, unmade, undying. And because there is that which is unborn, unmade, undying, there is deliverance here and now from that which is born, is made, is dying. There's something we can understand. There's something we can discover. In the very midst of all of this. That frees us from being bound to it. In the early years of my practice, I was fortunate to have time to engage in meditation in, in Asia and in India. I uh, sat retreats in, in the town or the village of Budgaya, which is the, the village that's grown up around the tree under which the Buddha sat when he was enlightened two and a half thousand years ago. Although it's not actually the tree now, it's the grandchild of the tree from a sapling that was planted elsewhere and then replanted back in the place. But at the Thai temple there, I'd been on a retreat the previous year and I'd really enjoyed the experience of these puppies and I was really enjoying... The monasteries are kind of like a, um, a sanctuary for, for all sorts... And you get all kinds of creatures turning up at monasteries, not just sort of elderly folk who don't have a re retirement plan and they end up in the monastery sometimes. Um, but you also find dogs and chickens and occasionally goats and you know various waifs and strays on the, um, who are on the road of which I probably could classify myself as one at that time. But um, anyway, I was practicing, and the puppies were really just just so delightful to me, these young creatures running full of joy, and you know, it seemed full of life. And 
and sometimes, you know, when you're walking really slowly and mindfully, they just run up and bang into your leg, probably just checking to see if you're really present, you know, because if you weren't, you'd fall over at that moment. Or if you put your plate down, they'd come and just help you with your dinner because probably you had too much and, you know, or lick your plate clean, you know. And I, I just found my heart overflowing with love for these little creatures and their brightness and their joy and also the pain and their struggle. And I, I sat with one in my lap as it was dying because they don't all survive. And, and then some point, after a couple of weeks after I was there, I had this sudden realization and it was shocking to me that I thought these were the same puppies I, as the ones I'd been with last year. And obviously they're not. Those puppies have grown up. These were new puppies, but somehow this whole time I'd been believing these were the same puppies. And it's like there's something about them that fools us. There's something about life that fools us in this way again and again. And it's like what I kind of understood is, yes, the puppies keep changing, but puppy nature is unchanging. The nature of these beings hasn't changed at all, even though the beings themselves have grown up, moved on. And there's this new generation of puppies. And this practice is an invitation to understand not just the nature of phenomena that come and go, but the deeper nature, the awakened nature of life that is not separate from the things that come and go but that is not bound by them or to them. And this we can understand. This we can know for ourselves. This the Buddha's teachings point us to the discovery of and to the living of our life in accordance with. Freedom. The heart's release from entanglement. This is born of letting go of non-clinging. And seeing the truth of impermanence invites us, reminds us, compels us to practice this, to let go. To see this changing mind, body, heart, experience, this world equally changing. None of it defines ultimately who and what we are. And so can we enter into our experience unconditionally? with our hands and our heart wide open to receive this life, holding on to nothing, resisting nothing, allowing our life to sink below the surface of what appears into the depths that are equally just this right here and now. So I'd like to finish with a quote from one of my teachers, Ajahn Suchito. Ajahn means teacher. And uh, I met Ajahn Suchito in that monastery in Budgaya, India, um, about 26 years ago. And uh, he gave a talk from which this is a, an extract. He said, There is no real learning on the intellectual level. There is only a kind of learning that we do when we have the humility to recognize 
that really the learning part is when we go to the edge of where we know and where we control. And the nobility of our life, the nobility of our purpose, the aspiration of our life says, keep going past the area where you can't control it anymore. And trust. For me, this is the heart of devotion, of faith, of surrender. Not a surrender of responsibility, but a profound recognition of what the responsibility of this being is. To live in accordance with truth, to honour truth, and to trust the truth of our life as it is. What lies beyond me and control and the sense of self is the joy of the deathless, the joy of the boundless, the mysterious vastness of life. So may we all in our practice here together and in our lives, may we come to see deeply into this truth of impermanence. May we learn to live our lives in harmony with the fluid nature of things. And may we come to know deeply for ourselves the unborn, undying, awakened nature of life in its vastness. For our own welfare and for the welfare of all beings and all that lives. <laughs> 